millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com A Living History Production I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Gary Bain and I'm and I'm here with the delectable Peter Hart. Hello, I'm Peter. Hello, Peter. Now, what are we doing today, Pete? Well, we're doing uh, uh, the, the Gotha. 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 You say Gotha. I say Gotha. I say Zeppelin. You say Potato. Oh, potato, potato. Uh, let's call the whole thing off, Gary. Uh, okay. And this is the Gotha, Gotha and Zeppelin raids on Britain, 1916 to 18. And it follows on, Gary, what does it follow on from? 1915. Yes, our previous podcasts, uh, which had, uh, well, had, had uh, dealt with the first the two years raids. of the war. The Zeppelin raids. Yeah. Very exciting, I found that as well. Uh, so uh, now, uh, so so where are we? Where are we? Where are we now? In 1916, uh, the Zeppelins had been effectively defeated uh, that autumn, hadn't they? Six of them had been destroyed, uh, and there was a. It's winter. It's not what what, yeah. what big windy thing. Yeah. So there's a sort of natural reduction in the uh, number of raids over the winter, aren't there? And really? that means you know, what 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 the impact of that on public on the. The great British public. Well, they've all forgotten all about it. It's gone. It's Actually, gone this, away. There's something this reminds me of, Gary. Yes. <laughs> you know, you remember this summer when COVID, it'll be a normal Christmas, everything will be fine. Ah, oh, well, here we go. Uh, so uh, so uh, how do you think the government responded to this reduction in public concern? Well, there's a slight scaling down of the anti-Zeppelin measures, which they introduced during the height of the crisis. That's summer 16, yeah. Yeah. Now... Facing spiralling casualties on the Western Front, let's not yeah. forget that's still happening. Well, yeah, because uh, the advent of the uh, the Albatross in in, in, in the same time, so, so they're having trouble. The, the Royal Flying Corps in, on the Western Front, and yeah, the and they're, Naval they're, they're desperately short of experienced reinforcements, and the lull in the air raids that that provides an opportunity for for a reduction in the establishment of home defence squadrons. Well, um, well, who would they pick first to go? Well, they would want many of their sort of night-flying trained pilots to get posted overseas. The best. They would go first, wouldn't they? Uh, I would have gone in about fifth or sixth. Wave. I'm waving. (laughs) Off you go, lads. (laughs) Now, having allowed themselves to sort of drift back into a position of complacency... This is very un-British. ...about the attacks from the air, the British authorities were... (laughs) Completely, totally unprepared. That's very British. <laughs> for the dramatic reversal of fortunes caused, 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 and caused by the commencement of aeroplane bombing raids in May 1917. Now they, that that in the last podcast we discussed, they'd originally intended to do that because they hadn't taken the Channel ports in 1914. They couldn't really reach England uh, terribly well, so they 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 they'd sort of they they they. they, they They'd been distracted. They were also fighting on the Western Front. They, they had lots of other things to do. Uh, so there'd, there'd been a couple of tip-and-run raids. Uh, and, and by the end of 1916, how many people, have a guess, had been killed by aeroplane raids in, the, in 14, 15 and 16? Oh, uh, quite low, I would imagine. 25? Spot on! How do you do it? Notes. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Now, uh, so uh, now they've got something new now, though, as well. I mean, they, they, they had to develop a new aeroplane, and they did. What was it? Well, we're going to argue about how you pronounce it, but what was it? Well, it's the Gother G4, uh, which they'd finally, in that machine, developed a, a machine that matched the means with the avowed wanted, intent. What they wanted to do, yeah. Yeah, so it's a, a large, purpose-built bomber. What were they called in German? They were known as uh, the Grosskampfflugzeug. Uh, and the largest G4 became infa- infamously known as the Gotha after the name of its factory, uh, the Gothair Wagenfabrik. Crikey, you are so good at German. Now, so, so what are these? What's you, why, why are these aircraft special? Well, it, for one thing, the, the, the size, the length of the Gotha's fuselage was more than 40 feet with a wingspan of almost 78 feet. That's, that's big. Now, it was also armed with three machine guns. So it could provide a fair amount of defensive fire on its own, yeah. Yeah, and it was powered by two 260-horsepower uh, Mercedes, en- Mercedes engines. <laughs> and, it, and it flew at between 70 and 80 miles an hour. When, would you consider its size? You know, yeah. scout aircraft at the time were doing about 9,500. 100, 110, but yeah. And yeah. It, was, it was doing 70 or 80 miles an hour. How, how, could it carry a decent bomb weight? Well, that depends on its height. Uh, I don't particularly understand why this is, but in daylight, it needed to fly 18,000 feet, and so it was able to carry only around 700 pounds. That's not much. But at night, when it was safer to do so, it was able to fly lower at 10,000 feet, and the bomb load could be increased to 1,100 pounds. Now, unless that falls on your head, that's not going to devastate anywhere, is it? No, but it's got it, a, a building or a couple of buildings. But you but can it, imagine the impact of seeing something like that flying over your town, your city. Uh, would be scary, wouldn't it? Yeah. When did they first start then? So, th- so they were delivered when? Uh, March 1917 to the Kampf 1. What does Kampf mean? It means Kampf All oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Sort of effeminate Geschwader. Now, uh, after- uh, where were they based? Uh, well, after training on the new machines, they, they were based in Ostend, uh, and they were ready to begin operational flying by the middle of May. Now, the first Gotha, 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 Gotha. Let's go, let's go with Gotha. Gotha. The first Gotha air raid occurs on the early evening of 25th of May, 1917, and 21 of the Gothas arrive over Britain. Uh, they were deflected from London by foggy conditions. I couldn't see it. So they bombed that old favourite. <laughs> it always gets bombed by aircraft that don't know what they're doing. What's that, Gary? Shorncliffe Camp, uh, which is uh, near to Folkestone. So yeah. they also bombed It's a Folkestone. big camp, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, now, in all, casualties totaled 95 killed and 195 injured. Now, that sounds quite a lot to me. But well, then it's there certainly are ramping a, up. That's quite a lot of aeroplanes dropping 1,100 bombs. So yeah. 1,000 pound bombs. Yeah, yeah. And although the Royal Naval Air Service and RFC pilots attempted to intercept the raiders, the lack of any coordinated plan of defence becomes evident as individual pilots tried to attack the high-flying German formation, which worked together to deploy their massed machine guns. So they just couldn't get close enough or in the right position, right. Uh, So what does this cause the great British (laughs) authorities to do? Well, (laughs) surprise, (laughs) surprise, there's a return to tighter anti-aircraft precautions and the restrictions on the gun batteries, they're, they're promptly removed. Now, th- this isn't the end of it, because on the, thir- the 13th of uh, June, 1917, a formation of 14 Gothas, Gothas sprayed bombs all across, liberally, I think is the word, is uh, East London uh, and uh, the city itself. Um, now, people originally didn't really understand what was happening, and, and what you, a, a lot of them just used to stand in the street, gawping upwards, with no real concept of their personal danger. Um, and, and what I really like, because this next quote by a really experienced by this time pilot, his name was Lieutenant Charles Chabot of 39 Squadron, Royal Flying Corps, uh, and he was, he was on leave. What does he say? I was up in town on a day's leave, and you did not go in uniform. You always went in civvies. I was wandering as an ordinary civilian down Cheapside and into King Street, which leads into the Guildhall, when a raid started. Raids hadn't become a very serious thing, and everybody crowded out into the street to watch. They didn't take cover or dodge. 
A bomb went off right over the Guildhall, and it seemed to me, having had quite a bit of experience of dropping bombs myself, ah. that it was very disappointing for the chap who had thrown it at the Guildhall, and it had gone off two or three hundred feet overhead. I couldn't help saying, oh, bad luck. This got me into disfavour with the people standing around, and I saw that I had said quite the wrong thing and had to make off. That's from an oral history interview with the War Museum did in the early 70s. I think David Lance was probably interviewed. My, my old boss. But I loved that quote. I could just say, oh, bad luck. And everybody... Now, in contrast to the earlier Zeppelin raids, which were mostly carried out at night, the Gothers attacked during daylight, and 162 people died, and 432 were injured. And they were standing about, gulping upwards, weren't they? They were, and the most horrible tragedy occurred when a bomb scored a direct hit on the Upper North Street School in Poplar, and you're going to be Miss L.A. Major. Who was a child. She was a child. child. Now, this this is terrible. The, the, our, our, the accounts of this are, are quite heartrending, uh, and the, these are not the worst, but the worst I felt able to put up. Uh, uh, the Miss L.A. Major, or the small child she was, said, Our teachers had warned of an approaching air raid and were endeavouring to keep us all calm by getting us to sing together. Soon, however, the noise of the anti-aircraft guns and the detonation of the enemy bombs became audible above even our shrill voices. And you can imagine them all singing, Go, Kingway, or whatever song, it's Christmas, I've got the wrong thing. But you can imagine their little voices singing, horrible noise, children singing. But they're, they're, So what happens? It is dreadful, isn't it? Well, uh, uh, the bomb crashed through the school, penetrating three floors before exploding in the infant's class on the ground floor. And I'm going to be Esther Levy. I was having a singing lesson at the time. I recall the tremendous bang. And of course, everybody was panic-stricken. A big fat girl called Kitty Chalmers fell on top of me. But I picked myself up. The teachers were marvellous. They were saying, don't panic and file down quietly. I distinctly remember one of the teachers carrying a girl. I think her name was Pittard whose leg was severed. What really frightened me so much was seeing all those little children being carried out. They were all black and their hair ginger from the TNT. It it must have been dreadful. It must have been absolute chaos. Children, infants running about, teachers, parents who live... Because, of course, parents would be local. They'd be rushing to the school. I can only compare it with the sort of ABBA fan situation. And also the rescue services. They're trying to establish who's alive dead who needs urgent medical treatment and you're going to be a mrs t myers uh yeah this is a a, another another school child of the time thinking only of my little sister age five i rushed down the stairs with another pupil i forced my way along the corridor which was filled with men and women frantically searching for their children and all were screaming and shouting i could not find my sister anywhere and it was two hours later when my father found her dead in the mortuary. I, I find that. That's awful. Uh, it's just... <sighs> She's obviously looking back and, and uh, through that quote, remembering it. And that must be something that stayed with her forever. Well, of course, yeah. Now, uh, the, the, the defences, uh, how did the anti-aircraft... Uh, the, 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 well, the, the, there, there were no less than 92 aircraft took off in an attempt to intercept the Raiders. But uh, Better organised? Well, no, they're again stymied by a lack of organisation and their inability to gain the necessary Plus altitude. that's why they're flying high, isn't it? Now, among those who desperately chased after the intruders was one of our favourites, James McCudden, who was on home service as an instructor at the time. Now, uh, who, which of us should play this part? Because he's sort of a real hero to both of us, so uh, that'll be you. That'll be me. So I'm going to be Captain James McCudden, Home Establishment, Royal Flying Corps. I caught up to them at the expense of some height, and by the time I'd got under the rear machine, I was 1,000 feet below. I now found that there were over 20 machines, all with two pusher engines. To my dismay, I found that I could not lessen the range to any appreciable extent. By the time I had got to 500 feet under the rear machine, we were 20 miles east of the Essex coast, and visions of a very long swim entered my mind. So I decided to fire all my ammunition and then depart. I fired my first drum, of which the Hun did not take the slightest notice. How insolent these damn Bosch did look, absolutely lording the sky over England. I replaced my first drum and had another try, after which the Huns swerved ever so slightly, and then that welcome sound of machine guns smote my ears, and I caught the smell of the Huns' incendiary bullets as they passed me. 
I now put on my third and last single Lewis drum. Each drum held 47 shots and fired again. And to my intense chagrin, the last hum did not take the slightest notice. On my way back, I was absolutely furious to think that the Huns should come over and bomb London and have it practically all their own way. I simply hated the Hun more than ever. I think they more, they, they, he was more nearly shot down by them than three, what's that, uh, 43, 47s, uh, 141? 141 shots against a dirty great big Gotha. Yeah, with uh, three machine guns. And, and there's, there's 20 of them, uh, of which... An unknown number, but several would be firing at him. Mm. So I think he was in, he was in danger there. Now this is a really horrible, horrible event. I, I want there's a plaque to this in East London that I saw, uh, presumably on the street. And and it, it's 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 this slaughter of the innocent. That why did it have to explode in the infants' class? I mean, what's the difference between an infant and, a, and an eight year old? But I don't know. It, uh, how do you think the press would the press respond sensitively and well? Then calmly? as now they'd have seized upon the ghoulishness of it and uh, driven by the need to satisfy the popular demand hitting back became a prime political concern with widespread calls for reprisal raids on Germany well that's a hit back in kind yeah doesn't really defend you but it just sort of shows what it just yeah and the pressure's increasing again on the government and and their scope for action it's severely limited by the refusal of uh, Major General Trenchard and the military commanders in uh, France Hague and the like, yeah. to allow their resources to be diverted, quite rightly, frankly, I think. Well, no, no, they, they, they were right, because in the end, the ca- this is terrible, the casualties of North Poplar Street, but the casualties are irrelevant to the war effort. Uh, yeah. uh, whereas if you remove squadrons from the Western Front, you, you, could, you could cause a lot more casualties there. Now, even to, to the British government, it, it becomes evident that the size of the British Air Forces has got to be enlarged. And on the 2nd of July, the War Cabinet ordered another significant expansion of the Royal Flying Corps to 200 squadrons. Now, that's, that's a huge amount of investment in raw materials, training of men, training of all the technicians, everybody. They've got to build there. It's a huge undertaking. So this raid has caused a big impact. Absolutely. Now, in the short term, Trenchard's grudging offer of the temporary loan of two experienced Royal Flying Corps squadrons from the Western Front for temporary fighting patrols on either side of the Channel was accepted. So, 20th of June, we get 56 squadrons sent back to England. 56 squadrons, that's the Aces squadron, or so-called. So-called, yeah. Uh, And 66 squadron, another good squadron was based, that is in Calais. Uh, now this this has consequences, and uh, we're not going to go into the consequences, but it does have consequences to the fighting on the Western Front. Yeah, but the anxiety and panic at home was such that something concrete had to be done, and this this was, you know, arguably the minimum that could be done. Well, and certainly Hagen Trenchard are determined to get these two squadrons back, and within a month they're uh, they're returned to their front line duties where they should be, Gary. Yeah, on the Western Front. But ironically. <laughs> Don't tell me. <laughs> Just a day before the next Gotha raid on London on the 7th of July. So they went back on the 6th. And, ah, I was just, it's spies, I tell you, Gary. Spies. They're, they're watching our every move. I tell you, they're watching our move now. Now, once again, the bombs tumbled down over the east end of the city, causing 54 more deaths and 190 injuries. That, and the, the building up, it's not, nothing compared to an attack on the Western Front, but, you know, it's a lot. This time, 95 aircraft took off to try and shoot down the bombers. But they're, they're still unfocused, aren't they, Gary? And so what's the result? Well, this, it's futile again, despite the prints of several of the latest scout aircraft. Now, you're going to be again, because once again, McCudden's up there. So go on, McCudden, tell us what happened to you. I could now discern a lot of big machines in good formation flying east. I had plenty of time to determine what to do, and also a lot of height to spare. As soon as all the formation had passed by, I dived on the rearmost machine and fired a whole drum at close range. In diving, I came rather too near the top plane of the Gotha and had to level out so violently to avoid running into him that the downward pressure of my weight as I pulled the joystick back was so great that my seat bearers broke and I was glad it wasn't my wings. (laughs) I remained above again and now thought of a different way to attack the rearmost Gotha. I put on a new drum and dived from the Hun's right rear to within 300 feet when I suddenly swerved and changing over to his left rear closed to within 50 yards and finished my drum before the enemy gunner could swing his gun from the side at which I first dived. 
I zoomed away, but the hum still appeared to be okay. Then I put on my third and last drum and made up my mind that I should have a good go at getting him. Ooh, becoming target obsessed here. Notice that. I repeated the manoeuvre of changing from one side to the other and had the satisfaction of seeing my tracer bullets strike all about his fuselage and wings. But beyond causing the gother to push his nose down a little, it had not the desired effect. I was very disappointed as I'd used up all my ammunition and the Huns were only just over South End. It was very silly of me only to carry three single drums of ammunition when I could easily have carried a dozen without affecting the climb and speed of my machine, for I now had nothing else to do except fly alongside the Huns and make faces at them. I love that. <laughs> That's dangerous. But that is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Three drums of 47, and well, that's he, all he's he got. he took off in a, in a rush. There is an account of someone who saw him take off, and basically he was in a mad rush to get in the air. It was a mistake. Uh, uh, you, you notice the experienced fighter pilot switching his tactics, uh, gradually working out how to attack the Gothers. Um, but he still failed. Now, uh, how, how does the public respond to this? Have they calmed down a bit? No, I mean, there's, uh, the, the public outcry increases exponentially. Uh, because this is now a second demonstration of impotence in the face of the Gother threat. You often have demonstrations of impotence, don't you? <laughs> Once again, there was the call for experienced scout squadrons to be sent back to guard the home front, despite the vigorous protests from Trenchard and Haig. You notice how I completely ignored that. But you are now giggling like a child. <laughs> I'll not. carry on. In accordance with uh, a fine British tradition... As I say, lads, uh, there's a bit of a problem going on. What should we do? A hard-pressed government established a committee... Kick it into touch! ...under Lieutenant General Jan Christian Smuts. Now, we're we're thinking of doing a podcast on him. He's an interesting figure. You you want to do a podcast on him, don't you? Why? uh, (laughs) Why do you want to do a podcast on him? Because he's an interesting figure. Now, he and the committee were to consider, firstly, the state of the home defences, and secondly, the whole question of the organisation of the war in the air. Well, that's big. Uh, So it's two separate reports. Uh, uh, I... I'm, I'm ambivalent about the Smuts report, uh, Smuts reports because they're not really that original. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of the ideas that had been floating about for ages. However, because they appeared when solutions were desperately needed and the government was sort of wide open and receptive, uh, it, 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 I mean, it, 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 came, it, it just. It just worked. You can tell he it, it wasn't original thinking because when does he come out with his home defences report? Well, that's out really quickly on the nineteenth of July, and and we'll go through some of the uh, recommendations. Well, so that's only that's only a, a, a ten days or so. Yeah, he recommended consolidating control of all London's defences, including fighter planes, intelligence of imminent raids, searchlights, and anti-aircraft artillery under one central body. Now, subsequently, this became known as the London Air Defence Area under the command of Brigadier General Ashmore. Now, that is not original, but it is, it is correct. I mean, you, you, you don't, you don't, you could, you'd have a job arguing against that, wouldn't you? Yeah. What else, then? To, can, tell me more. You, you interest well, me strangely. <laughs> Uh, the report also recommended a concentration of resources to meet the threat posed by large Gotha formations that were not as vulnerable to the single aircraft or anti-aircraft guns as the inflammable yeah, Zeppelins. Yeah, because by now our, our lads have got the Buckingham rounds, yeah, the, uh, the tracer rounds that, that set fire to things, yeah. But they don't set fire to Gothas, do they? Well, no. All the guns, them. also all the guns that could be spared from areas not considered under immediate threat, they were all concentrated in a barrage line east of London and the raising of three new scout squadrons with relatively modern aircraft was immediately undertaken. So the idea of this, let me get this straight from what you're saying. You have a mass of it in front of London. You have a mass, a line, a mass of exploding shells. And, and what's that going to do to a, a Gotha formation? Well, what's it's, the it's I- to break up the formation, isn't it? That's the idea. Uh, so that they can't work together with this combined machine gun fire. Yeah. So what would happen then? Well, once they're scattered by the uh, the wall of steel... Wall of steel, Gary Purple, pros warning. The Gothers would lose the advantage of their combined defensive machine gun fire. And they I've themselves... I've just definitely They said themselves that. Would, would come under concentrated attack by formations of defending aircraft. So, so again, have you, have you got any problem with this? No. No, it's good, solid thinking. What about... Uh, what about warning the civilian population and trying to stop them from gulping upwards? Like, like, well, like. air raid warnings were given, um, 
but as a whole, rather than to, to just those insignificant public utilities ah, so and before, factories. So before, they hadn't given a general alert? No, it was just where, you know, there was significant uh, uh, production well, well, facilities, for example. Big railway stations, yeah. things like that, yeah. Now, warnings, they'd long been a point of controversy. Why, why Gary? Why are warnings controversial? Well, you, you've, got, you've got to balance public safety against the disruption to production and normal routine that such warnings would cause. The casualties resulting from the daylight raids in June and July 1917 forced the authorities to reconsider the situation and a warning system of explosive rockets called maroons. Yeah, yeah, I saw, yeah, it's an unusual name, isn't it? That coupled with police activity using whistles and placards beep. to clear the streets. Clear the streets. But that was reluctantly introduced in late July. Sirens, the seemingly obvious solution. Now, to that, that's seemingly obvious to us, isn't it? Yeah. Now, at the time, they were both scarce and insufficiently powered. You mean you couldn't hear them? Couldn't hear them. Yeah. Uh, now, so I think that report is solid, solid work. I have more trouble with the second report on the general use of air power and, and the organisation of air forces. Now, when was that presented? That was presented to the War Cabinet in its final form just a month later. So, still only five or six weeks Still quick. 17th of August, yeah. Uh, Now, so so what does this examine? Well, this examines the concept of strategic bombing of enemy cities and the possibility of setting up an independent air force for for operations uh, separate from the the existing air force. So, in other words, a purpose-built force. Hmm. Hmm. I've got to say hmm to that. Now, it also recommends something that I, I'm probably violently against, and, and I'm not alone in this, although I love the RAF for what it did in the Second World War. Uh, what else do they recommend? Well, the merger of the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Services into one, plus, as you're alluding to, the creation of a separate air ministry as soon as practicable. Now, I find... Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, so that would become the RAF on the 1st of April 1918. Uh, um, the, it's accepted by the War Cabinet, uh, uh, and uh, oh, I don't know, and, and it, it takes a while, but I'm not sure about this. Um, now, so, what, what, why am I doubtful about it? I mean, what, what, what do you think? I think Smuts slightly over-exaggerates. What does he over-exaggerate? Well, he, he, he over-exaggerates the, the, the menace of the German raids on Britain. It, it had never been intended to bomb Britain into submission. That was impossible with the It was impossible. Loads. And in many ways, it, it now appeared to have been to an over-radical response. So really. the organisational things weren't necessary. The, 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 the sort of basic nuts and bolts stuff about, about defence, anti-aircraft defence, is well, fine. It, yeah, it, but it, do effect- we need to have a single air service? I don't know. Well... Um, <laughs> All right. I, arguably not, because the Royal Flying Corps and Royal Naval Air Service, they'd already sorted out and clarified and, uh, their, their roles, their yeah. roles and, and, and that had made them much more distinct. Now, London's not attacked again in daylight, uh, but there's a series of raids on coastal towns throughout July and, and August. Um, but what happens to these raids? Because this is the interesting part about smuts. Is it necessary? Because... Are, are the British not getting a grip on it anyway? Well, they are. The combined effectiveness of the anti-aircraft guns and the increased efficiency of the modern British scout aircraft, that caused growing casualties among the Gothers. So how do the Germans react? Well, it... it, it they always forced... react. We've talked about this yeah, before. Yeah. Equal and opposite reaction. It forced the introduction of moonlit Gotha night raids in early September, which allowed them to extend their scope back to the capital. Yeah, because uh, they've got more freedom of movement. Uh, now, uh, there's something else arrived, uh, and this is a very imaginative name. for. Well, the, they're, they're now supplemented by the even larger giant bombers. We can pronounce giant, can't we? Giant. Giant. <laughs> We're going to call them giant bombers. <laughs> yeah, giant bombers. Now, the moonlit... Moonlit? Moonlight. Moonlit raids yeah. were a sore trial for the people of London. Why? Well, many of them faced the bombs, you know. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. From their own homes, in taking shelters in cellars and any other, you know, safe as safe as anywhere could be, places. And you're going to be Celia Croft. I think Celia Croft might be a bit posh, but I'm, I'm resist. There's no silly voice in this episode. Uh, here we go. They came first at about 6... Th- oh, I couldn't resist. <laughs> they came first at about 6.30 last night. We heard the whistles blow and the policeman shouting, Take Gulva! However, there was only a very distant... Visiting from the north of England. I was going to say, the policeman in London. <laughs> there was only a very distant bombardment. And then, all clear, went by 7.30. Nevertheless, by 8.30, back they came again. Poor dear Mary is dreadfully nervous. So he took her downstairs and ensconced her in the first floor passage in a very safe place. Then Phyllis and I stole away to the top window, which looks east to watch. I have never seen such a sight. The sky seemed full of shells. First north, then south, then right across. The noise was deafening, but even above the roar, you could hear the scream of the Archies as they rushed past. That's Archie shells, she means. Then there was a dreadful, dead pause, very terrifying after all the noise. Then coming from the east, oh, the dogs appeared. <laughs> then coming from the east, we heard the hum of the engines, the machines. We, we nearly killed ourselves trying to spot them, but we could see nothing in the fog. In the meantime, they had arrived overhead, so we, th- we thought it was time to go downstairs. We were just saying nonchalantly to Mary that we'd come down because there was nothing to see when the most hideous noise started, and I personally thought we should have a bomb on us at any moment. As a matter of fact, it was shells bursting directly overhead that made the row. But heavens, there was a noise. The place was covered in shrapnel. It's an interesting point about all anti-aircraft, firing of anti-aircraft guns. What's that old proverb that comes to mind? What goes up must come down. Indeed. Can I just point out that the all clear was obviously given by a different policeman? Yeah, it would be. The other one had gone off duty. The other one had gone off duty, yeah. Yeah. Now, (laughs) others took shelter in well-constructed public buildings which offered at least an illusion of being bomb-proof. And you thought you were posh. Oh, I did. Lady Morrison Bell, with her daughter Sheila, arrived by train at King's Cross Station in the middle of a raid to be met by a chauffeur, a child nurse, and what seemed to be a large part of the London population. Now, why won't that be? Well, you're going to be Lady uh, Morrison Bell. It's uh, it's, it's the role you were born to play, I think. Um, uh, Remember, what are you? I'm a lady. (laughs) Lady Morrison Bell. The station was a sight to see. Crowds and crowds of poor people from the slums all around King's Cross had assembled and brought their beds and furniture and babies and had encamped there under this concrete railway arch. Rather interestingly, I worked for a company called Ross Electronics in the, I think it was the 80s, who were based in in those very same arches. So I may have well been in Lady Morrison Bell's arch. (laughs) Who hasn't? (laughs) 
A policeman I've told me. Through that <laughs> a policeman told me they came every night and stayed there all night. It was pitch dark as all the station lights were extinguished, and only bursts of shrapnel lit up the scene. The chauffeur was cheering as he kept on saying that the concrete roof would keep off shrapnel, but a bomb would come through it like matchwood. It's cheerful, Cove. <laughs> One could hear the dull thud of bombs falling, so different from the roar of the guns. They do make a desperate noise. Every few minutes there was silence, which was more nervy than the roar of the bombardment. And then the guns would begin again as the raiders tried to attack again from a new position. In one of these silences, a poor woman in the crowd flung her arms around my shoulders and buried her face in my coat. And another woman near me gave a wild shriek and fainted. And it was rather horrible hearing her fall heavily in that dense crowd. There was a big open aperture to the sky in the wall of our archway and at one moment brilliantly clear against the moon I saw five or six enemy aeroplanes in the sky and bright jets of fire bursting all around and underneath them. I climbed up on a pile of luggage to see better and it was a thrilling sight. When one thinks that night of horror is what the people at the front go through hourly, it makes one feel ashamed to make any fuss. Quite an interesting... It, it is an interesting cat. Notice how she too found it... Uh, the, the quiet... When, when it went quiet but also it? you know she climbs up to it's, it's almost as if the gothers are mesmerising she climbs up to look at them and get a better view through that hole yeah it's, it's, it's interesting now um, where else would people shelter what's, what's, well, what's the obvious, obvious source of shelter was the underground railway network that used to be run by you Gary well thousands of Londoners congregated in the tube station and spent the night on the platforms it's it's, it's like the second world war then well, it's, yeah, it, it, except it hadn't happened yet I, I hate people who say that yeah. but it, it, it was a, it's, it's interesting um, I bet it wasn't very comfortable now the night raids once again harshly exposed the scarcity of pilots trained in night flying particularly among the new scout squadrons and a crash programme of training that's a rather unfortunate choice of words by you there crash programme training well maybe not so unfortunate <laughs> indeed do you probably selected that carefully now unfortunately the very instability which made high performance aircraft such as the sop with camel so effective as scout aircraft was not conducive to easy night yeah flying. they flip they, they flip to one side as easy as as a sausage turns over in a in a chip pan a chip pan frying pan yeah now, it's also difficult for the pilots, as well as the gunners and searchlight crews, to see the relatively small targets offered by aircraft. Why? Why is it harder than seeing a Zeppelin? Well, because there's a huge girth of a Zeppelin, isn't there? It's Bjork, as, as, as the Turks would say, Bjork. Now, further problems arose through the danger of guns unable to, to distinguish between British and German aircraft opening up on RFC Yeah, machines. you're not likely to see the roundels at night, are you? No. So the net result is more, yet more defensive measures. Well, we'll introduced. go through these quickly because this is this is just more of the same. So uh, more anti-aircraft guns were moved. So you move the anti-aircraft guns out of the area patrolled by the defending scouts. You have a clearly defined zone about ten miles from the centre of London, and and the, the aircraft weren't allowed in that British zone. aircraft. British aircraft. <laughs> you you don't forbid the Germans from entering. You don't eat the goody. Uh, and and you can see the logic of that. So you have, you're now having another, your distinct lines. So there's the aircraft zone and then there's the anti-aircraft. Now, lines of tethered balloons are raised Hang to 9,500 feet. Are these kite balloons? They're linked by hor- horizontal wires from which were suspended wire streamers. Now, this created a physical bar- barrier that forced the Gothers to fly higher and so reduce their bombing accuracy. So what you've got is, uh, is these kite balloons, and then from them a wire between, say, two, and then hanging off that, uh, dirty great big wires uh, that yeah. would, would probably interfere with an aeroplane? Yeah. Right. That makes them go higher. Why, 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 why do you want them to go higher? Well, there's less first... accuracy. Right, so what else? There's one more thing. Well, finally, there's a resurgence of interest in promoting a forward defence policy by attacking the German bombers on the ground in their airfields. Oh, so in, over in, in Belgium and France then? Yeah, yeah and, and, you know, the whole question of repri- reprisal rates. 
now, something else happens. Uh, the, the Germans never stand still, seemingly, do they? Because what else happens? Well, interestingly, it, it gets further complicated when the Zeppelins returned. I thought they were, they were finished. Well, they were modified and they had new tactics. New tactics. And, and they joined the Gothers over London. Now, to avoid the unsustainable casualties which they'd been suffering, the German airship fleet was drastically altered. And you're going to be uh, Anon Helmsman. It's an interesting name. Yeah, my parents were uh, unimaginative. But they guessed what my career would be. An anonymous helmsman of L45. And what does he have to say, Pete? He's explaining what what they're doing, how they adapt it. So he says this. Everything was so perfectly contrived to save weight, while the ship itself was even bigger, even though it had grown lighter, and so rose higher. Ah! The cars were smaller, it is true. We were more crowded. Our rest quarters had been suppressed. Machine guns had gone so as to reduce all weight. Height and speed, we are told, would be our true defence. 6,000 metres would be easily attained, and no English gun or aeroplane, it was stated by our officers, could touch us at that height. At last, our hopes were not to be fulfilled so literally as that. Ah, oh, right. So, well, height, height but, does actually grant the Zeppelin some protection from the more obsolescent types of defending aircraft, but only with a serious loss of bombing accuracy. So they can just fling... They're, not fling, but they're, they're dropping bombs they know not where. And far worse the, the, were the operational conditions for the crews. Why? As the Why new extreme altitudes turned rays into a physical and mental torment. And you're once more going to be the anonymous helmsman on L45. What brought consternation to some of us was the effect of the height. Uh, And not only the actual height, but also the rate of ascent. It was soon found during the actual height trials of the new ships that the strain exerted by their terrific ascending power was greater than many of us could stand. Height sickness, nausea, giddiness, we nearly all suffered from them in some form or another. Then there was another trial the cold. That was far worse than the height in its effects. The engine ratings were not so badly off. They at any rate could feel the warmth of the engine. While we, (laughs) poor devils, in the forward car, with at first no means of heating ourselves, suffered terribly. It was all very well for the short trips that lasted only two or three or even six hours at a high altitude. That was play compared to the long fights that now fell to our lot. Wow, wow. And, and I mean, they, they, they must have had their balls frozen off almost. It, it must have been absolutely appalling. And other parts. Other and parts other, are available. Other parts are available for the more sensitive reader or listener. One of the most Hello, notable raids Hello, occurs Hello, on the 19th of October. What happened there? Well, as the attacking Zeppelins approached the coast, they climbed to between sixteen and 20,000 feet. Now, that's avoiding the searchlights, it's avoiding the British anti-aircraft guns, and it's avoiding the aircraft. However, something else goes wrong. What goes wrong? Well, unfortunately, there was an unusual meteorological condition that night, and it meant that uh, while it was calm at ground level, there were actually gale force winds at much higher altitudes. Gale force winds? Gale force winds. (sighs) Right. Now, the experiences that I was on board L-45, commanded by Captain Lieutenant Valdemir Kohler, encapsulate the difficulties faced by the Zeppelin crews. And I'm going to be Lieutenant Carl Schutz, who was second in command of the L-45. We started in our naval base Tondem, and we had fixed our course to Sheffield, but the terrific tempest from the north made us lose our way. We came to the British coast, but we had no precise orientation from the ground. Suddenly, we saw some lights. Afterwards, darkness. We tried wireless bearings from Germany, but we couldn't obtain them. We started again to the west. Now, the cold is literally numbing them. They start to just lose all sort of feeling in, their, in, in any of their extremities, Gary. They do. Now, eventually, uh, the commander, Curler, he gave the order to turn back. But by sheer chance, they find themselves over London. They had no idea where they were. And I'm going to be that trusty standby, the anonymous helmsman. <coughs> and I feel guilty for not doing a German accent. At about 11.30, we began to see lights below. And as the lights continued, so it dawned upon us that it could only be the city of London that we were crossing the, in the air. Even Kohler, 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 looked amazed at the dim lights as Schultz, that's you, Gary, suddenly shouted, Yangding! He changed his voice. Kohler clearly had but one thought. That was higher! 
So he released more ballast and the bombs, first two sighting shots and then the rest over London. We had achieved what no other German airship had done since Mathy had bombed the proud city over a year ago, and his last city across the city had pre- proved his undoing. Fortunately for us, we were unseen. Not a search. <coughs> Sorry about that. So, so where was I? Oh, yeah, the last trip across the city had proved his undoing. Fortunately for us, we were unseen. Not a searchlight was unmasked. Not a shot was fired. Not an aeroplane was seen. If the gale had driven us out of, out of course, it had also defeated the flying defences of the city. It was misty, or so it seemed, for we were above a thin veil of cloud. The Thames we just dimly saw from the outline of the light two great railway stations I thought I saw but the speed of the ship running almost before the gale was such that we could not distinguish much we were half frozen too and the excitement was great it was all over in a flash the last big bomb was gone and we were once more over darkness and rushing onwards now uh, what's, what happens next what, well, so they bombed London yeah, first for a year but right, now first, first Zeppelin yeah, but now they face the challenge of finding their way back to Germany intact if their success was not to be a Pyrrhic victory. Ooh, Pyrrhic. And I'm once more going to be Leutnant Karl Schutz, the second in command of the L-45. Running before the wind with a full speed, we dropped the large bombs. They were... 600 pounders and I heard later on one great bomb fell on the Piccadilly Circus but we had no time to look we must give our course to Germany which we hope to reach over France or Belgium now our misfortunes began three engines stopped working and a machinist was intoxicated by the gas of the exhaust pipe which had a leak I tried to help him back to life with cold water after he was better I ordered him to go in the ship to his hammock. Alas, he never came in the ship. He stumbled on the ladder and fell down 18,000 feet. That'll avert. That's not nice, is it? No, it isn't. Now, uh, the, the, their engines are failing. They're short of fuel. Uh, the, 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 the winds, because this gale force wind at high altitude, uh, I don't understand meteor, meteorological sausages, but, uh, I mean... The L-45, uh, what about you? Did it get back to Germany? Well, no, it, eventually it crashes in Switzerland and the crew, they're interned for the rest of the war. Which is probably the safest thing that could have happened to them, to be honest, uh, because uh, uh, as you'll hear, listeners, uh, Zeppelins start to suffer during this phase of the war. Yeah, on the ground, the sound of the distant airship engines, it was muffled or blown away in a high-altitude wind. So this raid on the 19th of October was dubbed the Silent Raid. Yeah, I've, yeah, um the, the, the British defences seem almost helpless against it, uh, against high-flying zeppelins. Uh, but the weather was so bad that uh, they were struck down by na- nature, weren't they? Because four, four zeppelins are lost. That, yeah. That's a lot. Now, these losses, they're crucial in discouraging the Germans for attempting any further airship raids. Well, that, that's for them, that's a shame, because they had exposed a weakness in the British defences. Uh, extreme height but it, it's to, there are other problems up there and of course there's no accuracy at all mind you if you're just trying to hit london still now um what was happening on the ground then you're going to be lieutenant colonel alfred rawlinson uh west sub command royal garrison artillery well he's talking about silent raid and, I, and i'm going to be him and he says the most outstanding feature of the raid he means the silent raid was a conclusive proof afforded that on that occasion at any rate the defenses were powerless to offer any effective resistance to the attack which successfully achieved its main objective. That is to say, the enemy were able to place their fleet in a commanding position over London in spite of every effort on the part of the defence to prevent them doing so. Here, indeed, is a matter for serious thought and considerable apprehension. It is futile to assume that because the act of God in the matter of the freshening wind saved the town and brought the subsequent destruction of the enemy's fleet the defense as then conducted was uh, was was not in any way responsible for that merciful result the actual fact being that the defense was powerless to offer any resistance at all to an attack delivered in silence from so high an altitude Mm. Um, but 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 it had, those losses had really dispirited the, the the zeppelins. Yeah, and in the end, the zeppelins they never do return to London. But the the Gotha raids continue into nineteen eighteen. Now, so 
all over the country there's these new measures, especially around London, we've discussed that, to tighten the defences. Uh, and as they get tighter, as they get better, every raid by the Gophers, every raid is making every new attack more costly, isn't it? Yeah, the efficiency of the anti-aircraft defence personnel gradually improved as the effectiveness of the three components, elements of the guns, sorry, I'll say that again, <laughs> the three component elements of the guns, aircraft and searchlight, well, they're all maximised. Well, they're working in harmony, extent. so that the the searchlights spot them, uh, and and that guides the gut. The first the guns have a shot will go at them, and then the aeroplanes, or vice versa. But because remember, we're in zones now, uh, and and of course, training is important, isn't it? If you're firing an anti-aircraft gun, you'll get better at it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the last aeroplane raid it, it occurs on the night of the nineteenth of May, nineteen eighteen when no less than 43 bombers set off to raid London. Now, how do the defences perform now? I mean, what state are we in? What, what, uh, well, it all seems to just click as the anti-aircraft guns not only shot down three bombers, but deterred many of the others from even approaching London. That's the wall of shells. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, the patrolling aircraft, they're all now modern, fast scouts flown by experienced night pilots. They shoot down a further four bombers. Ah, the writing's on the wall here, isn't it? And uh, and and where else? Where else might bombers be needed uh, at this time? Where? What? What's happening now? Uh, well, the, May the, nineteen eighteen. Is anything happening anywhere else? Yeah, well, the German army's being quite hard pressed on the well, western front. Well, they're pressing us hard, uh, but but it's hard pressed. Yeah, but I mean, the the fighting's raging. This is a spring offensive, the end of the spring offensives almost. It's it's murder on the western front. So they just sort of abandon. The uh, campaign against England. The whole Gotha yeah. campaign. but uh, Yeah, not the war. No, <laughs> they don't give up the war. No, just the Gotha raids. What about the Zeppelins? Do they give up? And those. No, they don't. They have one more go. Do they? They do. Uh, now, the Zeppelins have been marginalised, haven't they? But they have one last attack. Not on London, well, but on 5th of August, 1918. And what happens then? You know, really, don't I do you? know. Yeah, but the, the uh, on the fifth of August, five zeppelins uh, with the German Airship Service commander. That, 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 that's the Peter, overall commander, yeah, Peter Strasser. He's aboard the new, brand new L seventy. Now he's an interesting character, Strasser. We haven't had time to deal with him, but perhaps people will look in my book. Uh, What's my book called? I've forgotten. Uh, Tumult in the Clouds, written with Nigel Steele about before you were born, listener. Probably it's oh. never a good name, is it, Peter? No, it's not lucky for some, is it? Now, now Peter Strass is on the L seventy, and they're going to bomb the Midlands. They're avoid they're avoiding the hot spot of London. The defence is there. They're they're bomb, but they're going to bomb Midlands. Uh, do they get there? No. Before they reach the coast, they're spotted from a light ship. It's a bit unlucky. <laughs> and uh, Major Egbert. Cadbury, great name. Well, especially in the Midlands, wasn't that where the Cadbury factory was? I think I think he may be part of that family. Anybody else in the aircraft with him? He was accompanied by his observer, Captain Robert Lecky. Uh, they were ready for them as they approached. Oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? You're going to be Major Egbert. I, I often think of you as an Egbert. Cadbury, great Yarmouth station. Uh, Yarmouth's nice. Uh, RAF. I saw three zeppelins high above us, silhouetted against the northern lights. I reckoned that their height was about 17,550 feet. That's a bit accurate. (laughs) Trenchard-like statistic there, I think. I climbed up towards them until I got the position where I was dead ahead. I then came along underneath the leading Zeppelin and my observer fired his two Lewis guns... Twin Lewis gun mounting. ...straight into the bottom of the airship. It was a most fascinating sight, awe-inspiring... To see this enormous zeppelin blotting out the whole of the sky above one. I could see a possible problem here. <laughs> As we went along the length of the ship, so she started catching fire. Yes. Until I, within seconds... I could still see a problem. Until within seconds, almost, she burst into a mass of flames and dived headlong into the clouds below us. Phew, missed. <laughs> it was one of the most terrifying sights I've ever seen to this huge machine hurtling down with all those crew on board. Now, the L-70 was destroyed. Everybody on board was killed, including Strasser. Uh, he was the leading proponent of airships in Germany at this time. And it, it marks the end of the Zeppelin menace, doesn't it? Uh, that, that's it. Let, let's look at statistics. You're good at statistics, and I'm appalling at them. Uh, given that I prepared the notes in which the statistics are probably totally wrong, but you get the pleasure of reading them. Well, the British statistics identify 51 Zeppelin raids, 
uh, unleashing 5,806 bombs, which killed 557 and injured 1,358. Now, the 52 aeroplane attacks, that's the various forms of aircraft, dropped 2,772 bombs, which killed 857 and uh, wounded a further 2,508. Now, this is has this nothing compared to the Western Front, or, or Gallipoli, or anywhere, really. Uh, but but what is unique for the British the British about these casualties? Well, for the first time, uh, it, it, mainly British civilians who, for centuries, you know, not they they'd been almost inviolate from the direct consequences of enemy action in times of war. So our previously, our, our professional armies would suffer, but our our, our civilians back home were were, were 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 on an island. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, as such, the widespread sense of shock within the civilian community at the first ever concerted air offensive had itself become a significant factor. Now, I think it's, there's an important point to make. that The, the material effects of the raid, the direct, the bombs, um, they, they, they're in, they don't do much serious damage. The, the impact is an indirect impact. Now, you're, you, you're a, a, a former captain of industry. Uh, what, what, what's, what's overlooked to the, the, the indirect effects. What indirect effects does it have? Well, for one thing, there's a major disruption to wartime production. How? Well, the bombs might not actually have hit many of the great munitions factories or killed the significant numbers of the workforce, but production was lost every time a factory blacked out when a raid was threatened. In uh-huh. cases such as the iron and steel industry there was a serious danger of explosion or lasting damage to plant equipment from the suspension of normal working procedures. So if you switch off a Bessemer furnace or some of this this really complex machine, don't do it any good. No. But any factory working, if you stop work, it takes a while to get it going again. But it could take days to get Bessemers and things going. They weren't only factories. No, well, well, what else could be disrupted? Well, transport systems, particularly the railways, they were vulnerable to almost total disruption. And Which, what would now we have a tube strike, or what happens when there's a tube strike? Well, the next day, a large part of the workforce are late, yeah, um, or not at all, or yeah, uh, and and that happened quite regularly on the morning after a raid. How else can the workforce be impacted by air raids? Well, this happens to you and I. You can sometimes notice a difference in our podcasts, dear listener, if you have disrupted sleep. Disrupted sleep patterns. Yeah, I mean, and just the stress. I mean, the stress, everything. Yeah, absenteeism rose dramatically. Wow. Um, So, so, and there's one other thing, that the Germans don't have to do anything. Yeah, the false alarms. So, false alarms. You you get reports of Zeppelins are coming. Well, you you can't ignore them. You can't ignore them. So, everybody goes, you do as, it has the same impact. Um, now, so uh, what, what is the overall situation? There, there, there's something out there. Is another impact of raids, and that is the the anti-aircraft precautions. What, what do I mean by this? Well, thousands of men manned the anti-aircraft guns and searchlights. Now, those men could have been manning artillery batteries yeah. on the Western Front, right? Uh, there were observers dotted around the countryside. They were probably older. But and trained Royal Flying Corps squadrons had to be allocated to home defence duties. We've discussed that. So, overall, the diversion of vital resources that could have, that could have been deployed on the all-important Western Front. Um, so, the Zeppelin... <laughs> Nobody really thought the Zeppelins and Gothers would destroy London. Uh, but, but what do we think the overall impact is? Well, they were certainly uh, a harbinger of, of things to come, weren't they? Yeah. So they did have an impact, but it, 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 it's, it's, the, the, the day of the bomber hasn't come yet, has it? No. But you can see it's going to get worse. Cheers, and it Pete. Will. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?